Hello again, and welcome to the Messages podcast of Newbury Park First Christian Church. We're glad you're listening because we believe that constant contact with the Word of God, obviously handled with the right heart, can really change your life and can help you adopt the kingdom of God into every part of your daily rhythm. Today's podcast is from a series called Resolve, based on the book of Daniel. Just as Daniel found himself in the middle of a culture that was quickly flowing away from God's design, we can learn from his example how to resolve to follow the Lord no matter what and thrive as a result. So be blessed today as you receive this word. You know, um, this is one, I, I love this time of year because uh, I, was just, I was watching uh, school teachers walk in and all of them are like, four more days, right? But then, of course, the parents, the moms, you know, and, and all the parents are like, oh my gosh, now the kids are going to be home, right? But I love this time of year. It reminds me so much of my childhood. I love, I mean, just when you're a kid, man, summer is just, it's all about summer. And I, one of the things I remember about summer the most was we used to, um, we used to always like make these little lemonade stands. How many, how many of you ever did that? Like, yeah, I, I saw it just the other day and I, I'm a sucker for that because I did it when I was a kid. So I stop at every lemonade stand like in, in the neighborhood, right? And all the kids, you know, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You know, they probably stirred it with their hand, just like we did, right? And I'm like, I don't care, like whatever. Um, so, but I remember having a lemonade stand. And, and then there was, there was a kid that just two doors down, she opened up her lemonade stand. So we had competition going, Right? But one day, I, I don't know what we were thinking. We, we kind of had walked away. I don't know, maybe we were going to mix some more lemonade or something, but we walked away from our little, our little thing. And this kid that had the lemonade standing down the street, she came over and she grabbed our lemonade pitcher and our little, like, I think we actually had a cigar box with money in it. And, and she grabbed them and she took off. And, and our little brother saw him, and he came telling him, like, hey, she just took the stuff. And she runs in her house, and she locks the front door, and she's standing there, and we're, like, pounding on the door, like, hey, let us in, let, you know. Um, you can't do that. Let us in. And there was, like, you know, those, the, the cool old doors with the, with the glass in them, and we're watching her, and she's, like, making faces at us. She's, like, pouring herself a glass of lemonade just to mock us. We're like, man, what in the world? Like, and we're just pounding on that door like we got to get in. I have no idea where our parents were. But then all of a sudden, our, our youngest brother, he realizes like on the side of the house that they have a doggy door. And he shimmies through the doggy door, runs into the house, unlocks the door, and we just barrel in grab our lemonade, grab our money, grab her lemonade now, right? Because two can play at that game, right? And we take off. And, and it, just, it just reminds me of this. You know, we, we all have these blind spots that just when we think we're safe inside and we've got it all locked down, that out of nowhere, out of left field or through a doggy door, something comes in to invade, and, and I know you're going, where are you going with this? Well, you'll see when we get into today's story in Daniel chapter 5, right? But that none of us, in fact, right when we think we're the safest, um, it's like we've all got these blind spots where the evil one can come in and attack. Or we might have a blind spot where God wants to do something 
in our lives. And so we're going to dive in. Last week we were in Daniel chapter 4. At the end, as the chapter ended, so did the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he died, at the, he died in 562 B.C., at the age of 72. Now, now, for you history people, we're going to totally geek out for the next couple pages of my notes, all right, on, on, on some amazing history, which is the backstory, what happens between chapter 4 and chapter 5. There's like a six-year or a little bit longer period of time that goes on there. Um, and so Nebuchadnezzar dies. He's 72 years old. He, he dies. And what happens, what we found last week was that after many, many years of God constantly revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, using Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the people of Israel, that, that God pursued Nebuchadnezzar and finally, finally after God like literally made the guy go crazy, that he surrenders his pride and I believe surrenders his heart. And I shared last week where I, I wouldn't be surprised if Nebuchadnezzar, if we saw Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because this guy surrenders his life and his heart uh, to God and proclaims uh, the most high God is of God over all things. Now, now here's some backstory to today's thing. So after Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's this massive power struggle for the throne of the Babylonian empire. It, it's between his son, his son-in-laws, and his grandsons. His son, there was a, his son, I mean, check this out. The guy's name was Evil Merodach, okay? Uh, that's the guy's name. And so he kind of just naturally takes the throne, but he only rules for two years until his brother-in-law, the general of the army, the guy named, his name is Neriglisar, he, assa he assassinates him, right? So then Neriglisar rules for six years, then he died, and his son, Labishai Marduk, he steps into power, right? So he steps into power, but his power, his reign only lasts for six months until his uncle, another one of the son-in-laws of Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Nabonidus, he has Labish Marduk murdered, and so then he takes the throne. So you can see this is just mad chaos, right? So after six years, though, of all this chaos and everybody squabbling over the throne and the kingdom out there just kind of going, going nuts and being left alone... Nabonidus, he takes the army and he sets out to secure the borders of the Babylonian empire, right? Because they've been squabbling inside. Now it's time to go make sure our borders are safe outside. So he takes the army, he goes out there. And so what he does while he's gone doing that, he, his son, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, he puts him as co-ruler, puts him on the throne in Babylon and says, okay, Hey, okay, kid, you're in charge while I'm out, like, doing, doing the work of the kingdom, right? Now, at the same time, our hero Daniel, right? Daniel, at this point, he's about 80 years old. So Daniel's just kind of been kicking it back in the kingdom, kind of, like, through all of this stuff. Daniel's surviving in the midst of all of this chaos going on in the kingdom. Now, here's some really interesting history. It's not, not in your Bibles, but, but it really plays in to the story. So meanwhile, we're told by the Greek historian um, Herodotus that the Persian king Cyrus begins working his way north in an alliance with Darius, who is the king of the Medes, and they create the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is, the, this is the area where all this is happening. Just wanted so some of you like to know, like, where's this happening? It's in this area really of Iran, Iraq, that area of the world right now. 
I think the next slide, it shows kind of where the Babylonian Empire is, the green spot. And then you have the Persians and the Medes. They kind of group together. King Cyrus starts moving north, and they actually, that arrow's a little inaccurate. They kind of move all the way up north uh, where the purple spot is, and, and they're just taking land as they go, right? And they're, they're just conquering all these other peoples. Well, then they realize, hey, we've got the Babylonian Empire halfway surrounded, so let's, we're going to take the Babylonian Empire. And, and so, that, so they set out to do that. Then they turn south, right, heading, heading down towards Babylon. And they come to this, um, the Gindus River, and something happens that's pretty amazing. Is at the Gindus River, they, they, it's at flood stage, and they were having to take boats, but one of, one of um, Cyrus's prized horses, um, this big white stallion, tries to cross the river, and because the river's a, at flood stage, the horse gets swept away. Cyrus is so angry that this happened, that he curses the river, right? And he, he makes a vow that he will overpower this river. Now you're thinking like, how in the world do you do that, right? So he decides rather than keep moving down to Babylon, that he's gonna stop and he's gonna figure out how to overpower the river. And one night in a dream, he's kind of given this, this vision of what to do. And he comes out and he takes 180 strands of rope, okay, these really long strands of rope, and, and he lays them out on either side of the Gindus River, right? And then he lines up his army on either side and he says, dig. And they start digging these 180 channels off the river out into the desert and then once they've got those done, you know, they kind of clip it into the river and all the water from the river flows, just flows out into the desert, literally drying up the river as it goes south, right? And so his big thing is like he overpowered, he overcame the power of this river. And so he, now, now he's like, now he's satisfied, you know, his, he's kind of like satisfied his anger and everything else. Now he's ready to turn towards Babylon. But it's wintertime, and he says, no, I'm, I'm going to wait. And so then what happens is in the spring, Cyrus begins to move towards Babylon. Now, hearing that Cyrus is heading their way, Nabonidus, right, who was out securing the borders, he tries to cut him off at a city called Opus just north of, um, of Babylon. And so he gets there, but Cyrus handily defeats um, Nabonidus. Um, and, and Nabonidus ends up retreating back into the city. Now, you might remember last week, okay, so there's a lot going on over here in this part of the world. Last week, you might remember that we talked about, like, how great Babylon was. Like, this city had walls that were 300 feet or more tall. I mean, that, that's, like, crazy, right? And they were 80 feet wide. You remember we said that, like, four chariots side by side could race around the top of these walls. There's also another historian that says that they had built food storage chambers in the walls of the city at certain points, and they had enough food to last 20 years, just in case somebody like Osiris decided to come and, and try to, you know, siege the city. They could just like, you know, they could just like hunker down in the city. Nobody's going to climb those walls. Nobody can get in. We're all safe, right? So they're thinking they're, they're all good. So because he thinks he's safe, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, really, in order to basically mock Cyrus, 
and say, you can stay outside all you want. We're good inside, right? Because we got these big walls. We got all the food we need. And by the way, the Euphrates River ran in one side of the city, meandered through the city, went out the other, and then encircled the city like it's a big moat, right? So you've got not only these huge walls, you've got this big moat, and you've got a water supply coming into your city. These guys could just stay in there indefinitely. And so what happens is, is he's literally, he, so to mock Cyrus, Belshazzar throws this gigantic, while, while the other army, the, the, the Medo-Persian army is surrounding their city, um, Belshazzar throws a big party. He's like, forget those guys out there. We're just going to party it up inside. And so that's where we jump in to Daniel chapter 5. So all that was backstory. Now, now let's take a look at what happens in Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave this great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave the orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, which by the way, I know he's his grandfather, but there's actually no word in Hebrew or Chaldee for grandfather. They always just call him father. So, so, he had, he, so Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze and iron and wood and stone. So Cyrus um, is not the only one that Belshazzar is mocking, right? He takes these artifacts from the temple in Jerusalem that were used in the worship of the one true God, and he, he takes them, and now he's using them to just have this big party and start worshiping these other gods of gold and silver and iron and bronze and all those things, right? Now, I don't know if you remember. This is pretty ironic, because do you remember the last time we saw that list of metals and, and, and stuff, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, the wood and the stone? Remember back in chapter 2, this big statue? And there was the head of gold and the silver and the, all that stuff. And it represented all the kingdoms that were going to come in and take over after the Babylonian kingdom was gone. And so he's worshiping the, the gods of the very people that are about to de totally destroy them, which is pretty ironic, right? So then their party is totally interrupted. Look at, look at verse 5. In Daniel 5, verse 5, it says this. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his, his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. I, I, I kind of love that, right? I mean, you, you have to imagine that these folks, they've been drinking wine and all this stuff. They had to have been like rubbing their eyes going, okay, you know, like maybe, maybe we drank a little too much, right? Because now I'm seeing things. I got this hand, it's writing on the wall. What are we going to do? But then he realized like, this is no hallucination. Like this, this is like a legit thing happening here. And so he's like, okay, now what? And so, and this guy just totally freaks out. And I could just imagine, I mean, here's this king and his, it literally says his knees are, he's just like, you know, I mean, imagine what it would like, how frightened you'd be, right? To just literally, your, your legs are giving out, your knees are knocking together. This guy's just freaking out. So jump into verse seven. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck. And then 
he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Couldn't be second because you got Nabonidus and you got Belshazzar, right? So he'd be number three. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar uh, became even more frightened. His face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. Which to that, I think all of us who've been following along in Daniel have to say, okay, how do these enchanters, astrologers, and wise men even have a job anymore? Like every time the king calls them in, these guys can't do squat, right? They, they couldn't interpret the dreams. They can't tell, you know, they, they couldn't do anything. And I'm just thinking, who, who are these guys and why are they still employed? Time and time again, they're absolutely of no use. So, so when there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call, right? Especially when you're in Babylon. Yeah, Daniel, right? You thought it was Ghostbusters, but it's really Daniel. So, um, yeah, Daniel. So look, look, I'm going to read a big chunk here, starting in verse 10. It says, then the queen which is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's wife, because she had seen all this stuff, so she's the queen mother, right? Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, he, she comes into the banquet hall, and she says, may the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him as chief over the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. So call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? Have you heard, uh, I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed with purple, you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, before Daniel tells Belshazzar what it means, he takes him on this little trip down memory lane, right? Because he's kind of like, okay, maybe you don't remember this. I know it's been six years or so, so maybe, maybe you've forgotten. But he starts in in verse 18. He says, your majesty... The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of his high position, he gave him all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal, and he lived in the wild donkey with the wild donkeys, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So Belshazzar, basically, uh, Daniel says, look, Belshazzar, you need to know who's in control here, and it's not 
you. You you need to realize, and, and if you'll just look back at what happened to your grandfather and all that he went through, you will see that you are not in control. That God is the one who puts the king in place. God is the one who deposes whoever he wants. So you need to realize that God is in control. It doesn't matter. Your, your walls don't matter. All of this stuff doesn't matter. God is the one who's in control. And so he, then, he, then he has this proclamation to Belshazzar, starting in verse 22. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this, in other words, you knew the story. You, you saw what happened. But instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Remember last week we said, you know, God opposes the proud. So it's, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds, his hand, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. In other words, I, I think what, what Daniel's saying is, hey, look, you knew the stories. You saw what happened to your, to your grandfather. You saw all of these things that went on, and you paid no attention. So God had to get your attention by sending a hand to write on the wall. And folks, I, th- I think a lot of us need to realize, like, God is constantly trying to get our attention. And, and the question is, is like, when are we going to wake up? We're going to look back and see everything that God has been up to and everything that God is doing and then say, yes, God is obviously in control. Or are we going to, like Belshazzar, wait until God has to send something like a mysterious hand writing on a wall for us to pay attention? I mean, we've all heard that phrase, right? The handwriting on the wall. Well, obviously, this is where it comes from. And, And we all know what it means, right? It means something terrible is about to happen. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so he basically tells Belshazzar, you have no excuses, you haven't learned, so God had to get your attention this other way. And so then Daniel dives into the interpretation, starting in verse 25. He says, this is the inscription that was written. It says, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought, you to its, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Paris, which is really just the singular of the parson word. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar's, com- then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel's clothed in purple and gold, a chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, while all of this is going on, right, while Daniel's in there telling um, Belshazzar what this all means, Belshazzar is also absolutely oblivious to what's going on outside. And what's going on outside? Well, what's going on outside is King Cyrus, just a couple weeks before this very night, King Cyrus, who's surrounding the city, he gathers all of his generals together, and he says, hey, guys, remember remember the Gindus River? And he goes, Let's do that again. And so he sends his army way upstream, and they start digging 
channels on the Euphrates River. So that in perfect timing, the night that Daniel is telling Belshazzar, hey buddy, your reign's about to come to an end, these guys break through and, the, and they divert the Euphrates River out into the desert. So the mighty 300 foot, 80 foot wide walls of Babylon are still standing, but the river that flowed in, those little spots underneath where the river flowed, those things are dry riverbeds now. And what had happened is uh, Darius, the king of the Medes, took his army down to the spot where the, where the river went out of the city. And Cyrus took half of his army and put it up where the river flows into the city. And they said, when the riverbed goes dry, you guys just sneak in, right? They found the doggy door. And they storm into the city and literally, and the Persians were known for fighting with bows and arrows, literally without firing an arrow, they capture the incapturable city. Now think about this. What's, like that whole thing is amazing, right? But when you stop and you really unpack it, think about this for a minute. I mean, so that, that uh, summer before, when they come to the river and all that stuff happens, and, and when Cyrus, you know, has this dream, like about how to divert the river and gets taught, like, okay, you can, you can divert this river out into the desert, and he learns something. I, I mean, that, that's amazing. But what's even more amazing in all of this is that a hundred years before Cyrus is even born, the prophet Isaiah says, hey, a guy named Cyrus is going to show up and he is going to beat up on all these other nations and then he is going to come and he is going to overthrow Babylon. I mean, go home this afternoon, just write this down, Isaiah 45, just read verses 1 through 3. It's a really great, really great story. But you got to realize that happened like a hundred years, that prophecy is like a hundred years before Cyrus is even born and he calls him out by name. And as I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about the fact that never ever underestimate how God is going to use a situation that you have had to work through to equip you to someday accomplish what God calls you to do. Because God does not just call the equipped, he equips the people that he calls. And so never, ever shy away from it. Like if God is calling you to do something, just realize this, because we're great at making excuses. God, I can't do that. God, I can't do Moses did, right? God, God's like, Moses, go, go tell the Pharaoh, let my people, I can't, I can't do it. I, you know, I've got this stuttering problem. I can't talk. I can't do this. God goes, I got that covered. I mean, all these people who, who God's saying, hey, come and follow me, come and do this thing. And we sit back. I mean, we do this today. Like, okay, God, I know what you're saying. I know what your word says, I, but, but, but I just, I don't know how to do, I can't do that, right? And God is looking at all of us going like, hey, I would not have called you to do this if I wasn't going to equip you and give you what you need to make it happen. And what blows me away is that God makes his prophecy 100 years before, and then the, the, the summer before, he basically teaches Cyrus how to divert a river so that in the perfect timing when God says, this is exactly when I want this to happen, that they dry up the Euphrates River and capture the city, 
just how God had planned. Is our God amazing or what? I mean, it's pretty incredible. And so then to finish off our chapter, Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 and 31 says, That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. We'll find out. We'll see more about Darius next week. But Cyrus, he goes back and he goes back to Persia, rules from there. He's the kind of the big king over everything. But Darius is kind of like a governing king of, this, of, of, the, of what was the Babylonian Empire. It's pretty amazing. So, so what, what, what's our takeaway from all this in this kind of fascinating story? Well, let's take a real quick look again at the, at the handwriting on the wall. Because I think for all of us, we've got to pay attention anytime there's some handwriting on the wall for us. The first word in the handwriting was mene, which means numbered. For Belshazzar, the number of his days was down to zero, right? And he was totally oblivious to it. But folks, we have to remember that all of our days are numbered too. That there will come a day when every single one of us, that the days we have left drops to zero. Unless, of course, Jesus returns beforehand. I mean, every single one of us are in that same situation. All of our days are numbered. In fact, the wisdom of King David in Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, he says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, he's, he's saying to God, like, God, help us to recognize our mortality, that our days are numbered, that we aren't here forever, that this life, that we're just pouring so much, eventually this is all going to end. Every day is day zero for a lot of people on planet Earth. And I would venture to guess that most, if not every single one of them, had no idea that that was their last day. And so we've got to recognize that our days are numbered. So many of us think we have all the time in the world, yet not one of us is promised tomorrow. So here's the question to grapple with as you're thinking about that. What have you been putting off? thinking, oh, I, can, I can get to that later. Like, I'm, I'm not talking about, like, washing the car, right, or mowing the lawn, which I need to do, or whatever. No, I'm talking about what are, what are the big things that you've been putting off? Most importantly, you know, what, I mean, thinking about, like, what's the thing that you know that God wants you to do, but you've been too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted, too afraid to do, or afraid that it might cost you or change your life too much? What's that thing that you know that God has been like pulling you towards, but you've just been like, uh-uh, I'll get to that later? Because there might not be later. I mean, have you been putting off the decision to make Jesus Lord of your life? Or maybe it's just to like really take your life with Jesus more seriously, right? You're like, okay, like, I kind of got it. I'm like, I'm in good with him, but like, I'll, I'll get more serious about that later. Well, like, yeah, what if there is no later? Have you been putting off? Have you been putting off getting baptized? One thing I know, I mean, I love it. We, we have baptisms all the time. But when I talk to people, it's amazing to me how many people tell me, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I'm like, what? Like, 
why, why, like when God moves you to do something like that, that's obviously a direct command from his word and he says, hey, you should do this. Why would you think about that anymore? Right? Like what do you think has to be aligned just right for that to happen? Like when God gives you something that's that direct, man, jump, follow, do what he tells you to do. What are you waiting for? Because what if you don't have a tomorrow to decide that? Because every day, somebody's last day. Or Jesus could return. I vote for that. But don't wait. Respond to him. Remember last week we talked about how God just pursued and pursued and pursued and pursued Nebuchadnezzar? You know, it looked like he was kind of just beating up on Nebuchadnezzar, but he was pursuing him. He was showing him who was God and giving him every opportunity to humble himself before the almighty God. And I got to tell you, folks, we have a God who pursues us. And if you have God who is pursuing you, man, I would just say fall into that. And turn to him, respond to him, and do it today. Because if you do it today, he'll secure your tomorrow. So the next word in the whole thing is this word tekel, right? Um, and it means weighed. And, and the interpretation of the thing that Daniel gives says, hey, you were weighed and found wanting. In other words, you were weighed and you didn't measure up. You got to remember they had these balancing scales back then. That's how they measured everything. And he says, hey, you got weighed and you know what? You were deficient. We need to put a little bit more, you know, like you, you needed more God on, on this thing. And again, like, it's like you were deficient there. And so the question, that I, it's interesting. Scripture talks a lot about this idea of being weighed. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, it says, all a person's ways seem pure to them. All of you think you're doing what's right, right? Like some of you are even like, well, I came to church this morning. That's got to be right. But all of us kind of live life going like, I think I'm doing what's right. And he says, and then it goes on in that verse, it says, but the motives are weighed by God. In other words, I know in a room this big, there's some people, you woke up and you were like, yeah, I don't really want to, but I'm going to get in trouble if I don't. Right? There, there's people who are just like, yeah, I want to go to church. I mean, I, I, most of my teen years. I was just like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to go to church. I'm not really sure I want to, but you know what, right? And, and, and what the, this passage is telling us is, is that, hey, what's more important than showing up? It's your motives. When, when you're out there living life, what, what's, what's more important, right? It's, it's your motives. Like, what is driving you to do these things? Hopefully, your motivation is that you're following Jesus, in Proverbs 21, verse 2, it says, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Here's a question for you. What if God were to weigh your heart today? Like, like, like what, would, what would you do if God just kind of weighed all of your heart and all of your emotions today? And ask yourself the question, where, where might you come up deficient Right? I mean, if God weighed your heart today, would it, would it be leaning more towards the God side 
or would it be leaning a little bit more towards the worldly my side? And where would you find yourself deficient in all of that? And what are you teaching your kids? I mean, I, I, I think really, really think about like the things that you do, the things that you plan, the schedule that you keep, the way that you spend your resources, the way that you handle your possessions, the way that you handle your time, all those things. Like, what are you teaching your kids? Are you teaching your kids that God is the one we depend on and he is most important and he is the one we worship? Or are we saying, hey, that's a great idea. We ought to include that in our lives, but here's all the things that are really important in our lives. If God was to weigh your heart today, where might you come up deficient? Or maybe look at the question this way for some of you. What is weighing your heart down this morning? Because you have a God who you can give that to. What's the burden that is on your heart? What is the place where you just need to give that to the Lord? Because here's the reality. you got to stop thinking that's just going to go away by itself. Because it won't. And will you give it to God because he says, cast all of your cares, cast all of your burdens on me because I care for you. God cares for you so much. He loves you so deeply. He does not want you to have to carry around all of the weight and all of the burden and all of this guilt and all of the shame and all of the sin. He has made a way for you to get rid of all of that. But we are just so stinking stubborn that we're like, okay, like, I like Jesus, but I'll carry this. Will we really stop and realize that he's the only one that can take care of that? And will you give that to him this morning? Last word. Perez, which means divided. Where are your loyalties and your heart divided this morning? I mean, let me... Let me let me put it to you this way. Let me ask you this. What fortress have you been building or trusting in? For Belshazzar, he trusted in the big walls of that city, right? Nobody can mess with this. Like, I am safe. I have got this covered. Nothing can take me down. Like, where are the things that you are putting your trust in? Where, where are you trying to find your security in life? Maybe it's your job, your finances, possessions, your 401K. You know, I, I know a lot of people, like, in, in my age bracket, they're all nervous about, like, what, what's going to happen to the retirement in the 401K. Like, but is that, are you just really depending on all of that? Is that the place of security for you? Is that where you're putting it all into? Maybe it's your position, your power, your influence. I mean, think about that in our world today, your influence, right? Like, what if all those friends on Facebook turn on you? What if you lose your influence, right? Can I just tell you this? Like, if, if all you're about is trying to gain influence, I, I think you need to have this little like conversation with the Lord about who should really be most influential. But maybe it's maybe you're finding security in, in your relationships. Maybe it's in your, your health. Maybe it's in your own wisdom. Where are you putting your trust? Because you might think everything is good. 
that you've got everything dialed in, that you're all secure, that your future's like you've got all this thing planned. You have a plan. But folks, we all have a blind spot. There's always a doggy door. And there's always somebody out there that is looking to take it all away. But if today's story teaches us anything, it's that we, in a moment, that river can dry up. In a moment, life can come crashing down. In a moment, it can be all taken from you. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21, it says this. It says, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain man, rich man, so he's already rich, yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I don't have enough place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. Listen carefully to verse 21 here. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I mean, where do we put our security? I'm putting all, I I think I'm, I'm pushing all my chips to the center and saying, I'm going for Jesus. Because he was the same back then, and he's going to be the same forever. And he's the only one that can secure your eternity. Folks, you, you, could, you could lose any of those things on that list. You, could, you can lose a job. You can lose your finances. You can lose your health. It can go away in a moment. You can lose someone you love. It happens to someone every single day. The question is, is when it happens. Not if, but when it happens, what are you left holding on to? Where are, what are you depending on? And I want to encourage you this morning that before tra- tragedy strikes, before the river dries up, before Jesus comes again, ask yourself this question, where are you placing your faith? Where are you putting your trust? What are you hoping in? Because everything else will let you down. Only he, only Jesus can deliver every time in every situation. Only he can save. Nothing else can save us. Nothing else can make sure that our eternity is secure. No one else can give us life to the fullest the way it's been meant to be lived. Only Jesus. And so... Will you trust him today? Will you depend completely on him and not on the things that you've set up to be your strength? Would you, would you even go as far as to say, I am going to give Jesus all of those things and let him teach me how to use them for his glory, knowing that if I'm doing that, he's gonna take care of every part of my life. You know, he proved, he proved that, he's, that he's able and he proved that he's willing when he went to the cross for you and me. He put it all on the line. You see, here's the greatest thing is Jesus pushed all of his chips to the foot of the cross. 
and said, this is where, this is where it all changes. And he said, I'm going because he had absolute trust in the Father's plan. And he did it so that you and I could in turn put our trust in him. And that's why each week we celebrate communion. If you have your communion with you, you can start figuring out how to tear off the little thing now. And then together this morning, let's remember this. That Jesus didn't come to just tell us what to do. Jesus came to give his life for you and for me. And so he can be trusted with our tomorrow. So let's take the bread that represents his broken body. And the cup representing his shed blood reminds us that he has forgiven our sins. He's the only one that can do that. And so let's take that together. And this morning, if you're here, and maybe you have been putting your trust in all those other things, maybe today's the day that you say, you know what? Today I'm going to place my trust in Jesus. If that's you this morning while we're singing this closing song, I just, I'd encourage you to just come up. You can talk to me. I'll have a couple of our elders who are going to just be right up here up front. They'd love to talk to you. If you've got a burden that you're carrying, you need to unload that. We'll have people back in the corners, the prayer corners, they'll be there to pray with you or hang around after service. We'd love to talk to you because there is nothing more important than getting this part right. Because nobody is promised tomorrow. So make sure that today you secure your eternity and trust Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the indescribable gift of Jesus, the links to which he would go to purchase our salvation. Father, thank you that you care so much for us and that you want what's best and that, Father, you continue to pursue us and and you want to direct us and you want our life to be lived to the fullest. But, Father, we recognize that only happens when we completely surrender to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We give you all the praise. Thank you for delivering us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.